Hello and welcome to the Simungos podcast. This is episode 49 and this is the first of a three-parter on humanitarian medicine. So I interview Dr. Aaron Kilborn, a trainee in emergency medicine who has worked all over the world uh, for a, a number of humanitarian organizations, but primarily Medicine Sans Frontiers. So during these episodes, we'll find out about Erin, what motivates her, some of her experiences and her advice if you're interested in this field of medicine. Now, this was recorded a few months ago, but it's been a little bit delayed uh, because of the pandemic. But Erin is still in Gaza currently on her latest mission, and we hope to speak to her and include that on one of the upcoming episodes. I hope you enjoy. Okay, so welcome to the Simungos podcast. I'm here with Dr. Erin Kilborn. Now, Erin is a colleague of mine, and I've known you for a number of years, isn't that right? That's right. But I never actually knew before I researched or did my research for this podcast how much you've actually done. I kind of <laughs> knew you did a bit of humanitarian work, but I didn't realize how much actually you've done. And it's it's all incredibly interesting, and you're about to go on mission again. So we're absolutely delighted. And the theme of this talk is about humanitarian work, your, what you've done and your tips and for others that may be interested in, in that. And can I also tell you that I'm going to live my dream through you? <laughs> Did you know this? No, I didn't. Did not. I ever tell you the story that actually the reason I got into medicine was to to work for Medicine Sans Frontier, and I never actually did in the end. I, I went out as a medical student to Africa in second year and contracted something, we think cerebral malaria, nearly died, um, was told not to go back to Africa for a number of years, and then my life took a different turn with music and other stuff, and I never actually did. So I'm about to live my, what maybe was an alternate version of my life through you, so I'm very excited to hear about all your stories. So let's just start at the beginning. So just... just Simply, who who are you mm -hmm. and, and what do you do and what are you about to do in a week's time? So, I, yeah, as you said, my name is Erin Kilborn. I am an A&E doctor uh, currently working at the Royal Infirmary with you, Owen, um, and have been working uh, in a kind of parallel life, I suppose, um, in as a humanitarian doctor as well for a number of years, um, as well as training in the NHS in emergency medicine. So it all probably started off, though, back when I was a teenager and kind of dreaming about what I wanted to do. And I have always had like a really international family. So my family get togethers are like a mini United Nations summit. Um, you know, I, Wait, my, what is your background? Who, uh, so my dad's American. I was born in the States. My mom's from Belgium. We lived in the Netherlands until I was about eight or so. And then we came over here. So we've been in Scotland for the best, most part of my life. But um, subsequently, lots of uh, very international people have kind of entered into the family. And, um, you know, I have a, a Russian stepmom who lived in Israel for many years. And uh, uh, and you speak lots of languages yeah. and your boyfriend speaks lots of languages. And <laughs> so you're very yeah, we're, cosmopolitan, is that yeah, the word? Yeah, we are. Um, and, it, you know, it's a very privileged position to be in, I think, in this world. And it's something I'm very, very conscious of. So in any case, you know, because of that mixed background, um, we've always traveled uh, ever since I was very little because we had family kind of sprinkled all over the place. Um and then when I was about 16 or so, 15, 16, maybe a little bit younger, um, I was hearing, overhearing this radio program my dad was listening to where they were interviewing a doctor and a nurse from um, a big medical organization. It may well have been uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, MSF, Doctors Without Borders, but it may also not have been. I don't remember. But in any case, I thought, my gosh, that is awesome what you guys are doing. You're doing something really, really important and necessary in the world. Like you're using your skills and your knowledge that you are in a privileged position to have. And you are helping to kind of share that knowledge and share those skills to, to better the lives of others. While at the same time living this really exciting 
life of getting to travel to places that you can't really go to as a tourist or as a, a not kind of you know everyday traveler in most cases and so that really kind of kick-started things for me and thinking actually maybe medicine was a good way for me to kind of and then you that. actually went and did some work even before you went to medical school isn't that right yeah what, that's what did right. you do what was your first experience um so i uh got involved with a gap year organization uh called project trust and they're a very 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 small charity based on the isle of Col um out in the west of scotland and they send volunteers overseas for either nine months or a year to work in a variety of different kind of organizations and, and charities. Um, and I went to Sri Lanka with them. Um, so it was myself and um, I think about 11 other volunteers that we were all paired up with another person that you've never met before in your life and you're going to go and spend an entire year with them. And I ended up in an orphanage and a kind of care home place in just outside of the capital of um, Sri Lanka, so in Colombo in a place called Sri Jayawardenapura. And um, yeah, I worked there for a year with uh, kids with lots of various disabilities and some adults as well, mostly teaching uh, English, a bit of music, a bit of art. Um, yeah. And that obviously didn't put you off. That obviously just <laughs> was everything you imagined it would be and more probably. I have to say it was an incredibly challenging period in my life. You know, I was 17 when I arrived. So I think it was, I was very young and I, I learned a lot, um, but it definitely made me think actually, despite the the challenges and despite the difficult moments that I had out there, it really confirmed to me that this was kind of, it sounds cheesy, but it was my calling in life. You know, I really wanted to continue to do something that would allow me to kind of continue traveling and seeing other parts of the world. Um, but at the same time, do something that I felt was really valuable. And what do you think it was in that first experience? What what was so valuable? What What, what were the things that are most memorable about it now? I think that I saw a lot of kids in that home who I felt actually shouldn't have been there. There were children with epilepsy who essentially the families couldn't look after because they didn't understand what epilepsy was necessarily. They came from very poor areas. And so there weren't medications available for these kids. And as a result, they ended up, you know, in a kind of orphan care center when actually they had families. And there were kids with things like clubfoot and cerebral palsy and a variety of other, you know, it was a girl who'd um, lost a leg in an accident. So she she had a, an above knee amputation and, and mobilized with crutches. And just because she came from this like hillside community and didn't have access to, you know, really, really high quality um, kind of prosthesis that would allow her to be a bit more mobile independently, it meant that she couldn't live with her family. And I thought, wow, there's so many relatively simple and not so simple as well, you know, medical reasons for these kids to be in a care home. And that struck me as really unfair. And that, you know, th these are people who should have had a normal life. And a year is quite a long time. Yeah. You know, most people would go for a few months, yeah. maybe a few weeks. That was that must have been tough for a 17-year-old to be away for so long. It certainly was, yeah. Because you, like some, some people could say you might have got out of it what you wanted in a shorter space of time. So what was the experience of being there that long? And at the end, was it like, oh, okay, I'm glad to be back? Or, you know, what, what was it like, the length of time? I think the argument that the organisation has for sending people for quite as long as that is that it will generally take you the first sort of three to six months to feel like you're getting to know a place and getting to know the people and really settling down into the space. And if you then leave immediately after kind of three months or six months, you, you haven't really had a chance to do anything that really makes 
potentially a big difference or that, that you really kind of get your teeth into a project if you're trying to do particular specific things and make a change that might be sustainable. Um, even at a young age, you can still get involved with sustainable development projects. That's that age, I don't think, is, a, is an argument for against that. And are you aware of that now? Because obviously just probably because of life circumstances, it's harder to be away for that period of time now. Do you find that frustrating? Do you feel at the end of a three-month or six-month period now that, oh, this isn't enough? Do you feel that acutely? Or? I mean, with the work I do with MSF, not so much, primarily because it is so very exhausting. But yeah, I mean, certainly when you're in a place for a longer period of time, you can establish a much better relationship with your colleagues locally. Um, and certainly, you know, it takes them a little while to trust you. And because of the high turnover of international staff in these projects, I think, you know, they, they're very wary often, especially if it's a long established project where they've had lots of expat staff coming in and trying to change things. For the local staff, that's very exhausting. And so I'm very, very conscious of that. When I come in, um, my kind of initial interaction with people is very much one of absolute respect and kind of reverence to the fact that these guys are from here they know the culture they know the language they know the people this is their home this is their primary employment this is you know for them it's just a job it may not be the same passion project that it is for me and I'm going to learn a heck of a lot from them even if I do have things that I can share with them so it's less of the sort of I'm coming here with this big idea of all this sort of kind of an arrogance you know of, of I know better than you do just because I come from overseas and that's not necessarily the case it may be that there are things that need to change and that there are practices that can be improved upon but it's a collaboration and that's something that I'm really really um what's the word I guess that I'm very kind of strict on that um with myself as well as trying to make sure that I don't impose myself on other people so there's probably too much to talk about actually because you've done so many things do you mind just kind of summarizing the missions that you've done tell us some of the experiences you've had and then we're going to pick out a few specific experiences after that but what what all are the missions that you've done so my first mission in 2013 was going out to Haiti um, to work in a burns unit so it was a, it, at the time I arrived it was still a multi-purpose trauma center um, subsequent to that they've kind of closed down the um, sort of orthopedic and general surgery sides of it and they've just focused on burns and that's with MSF France um, so each country section operating centre has their own kind of programmes and MSF France specifically focuses on burns care in Haiti so very very specialised and my job there was to work uh, as an in, in the inpatient burns unit as the burns doctor so I wasn't so much in the emergency department doing the initial resuscitation that was another doctor um, but I was responsible for the post-op care and coordinating that care, all the physiotherapy, uh, the nutrition, uh, antibiotic stewardship, and also looking very carefully at the kind of um, pain management as well for these patients. Um, so that was that was my first mission. Um, so six months in Haiti. And then 2015-16, um, I um, went to Central African Republic, and that was another six-month mission with MSF France, and we were based in the capital in Bungie in a trauma centre that was uh, an all-purpose trauma centre. So we did general surgery and orthopaedic surgery, and we had a sexual violence clinic that looked after victims of rape. Um, we also had a, a, a small arm of kind of psychosocial care as well that was that was there, and we had a very busy post-op clinic. So. My job there was essentially coordinating the medical care of those post-op patients, looking after the patients in the high dependency unit, running the ER and overseeing the post-op clinic and the sexual violence clinic. So it was a very busy job. And I had a team of 11 national staff doctors that um, I worked with, um, as well as all the nurses that were there. Uh, so it was a very, very challenging job, but very rewarding. 
um, we did a lot of good work there. And then the last mission I did was in Syria, and that was in 2017, um, November, December time. I was in Kobani, which is in the north of the country. Um, so it's the kind of Kurdish territories. And we were supporting a hospital that was run by the local Kurdish Red Crescent. And they were uh, getting support for their ER, their sur- their general surgical unit and uh, the pharmacy there. So we we went in and we had um, an expat surgeon, uh, an ER doctor, nurse and um, a kind of medical activities manager. Um, and we had an anaesthetist. We also had outreach um, team who worked in the refugee camp. So mostly primary healthcare and physiotherapy. Um, and we had a very, very important uh, psychological program as well for support. And we had a psychiatrist who worked with us for that program. So all extremely varied. Yes. <laughs> is, that, is that something you like about the job or would you like to continue to do the same type of work in each mission in a different location? Or do you love that? Do you just love learning new skills and, you know, having new experiences or... I love variety. I suppose that's one of the reasons I love emergency medicine too, because it's sort of like that mixed bag of you never know what each day is going to bring you. Um, It could be, you know, lots of minor injuries. It could be some major trauma. It could be some really, really sick patients, or it could be just, you know, lots of chest pains and, you know, it's so varied. And I, I really love that about emergency medicine. I think that that suits my personality because I like, I like that variety. Um, and in the same way, I, I enjoy the variety that, you know, the humanitarian missions give you too, because they stretch you in different ways and they push you in different ways. The one thing that has been a common thread through this is that it has been primarily kind of the trauma side of things. And it's very much, you know, related to work that I do as an emergency physician here. So trauma and burns care and uh, orthopedic and and general surgical patients, you know, those are things that we see as well in the UK and the NHS. And so although the context is very different and the quality of the care that we're able to offer our patients is very different, there is a lot of overlap. And by the time this goes live, you're (laughs) going to be somewhere else. So next week or Mm -hmm. a week from Monday, um, you're going to be leaving for another mission. Where are you off to? I'm going to Gaza. Which is interesting timing because obviously President uh-huh. Trump has just recently made his peace deal announcement. Uh, have you been updated on the potential impact of that? Is, it, is that causing a little bit of unrest in Palestine or, or, or do you know? What, Not what's yet. The um, the, I haven't yet had my briefing. So that happens uh, en route, essentially. I'll stop off in Paris. I fly to Paris a week on Monday and I'll have two days in Paris in the MSF headquarters there to get um, a bit more briefing and information from uh, the kind of desk that organises all the activities that are there. I'll then have a second briefing when I arrive in the region, and that'll be in Jordan in Amman, because we have a a relationship between the hospital I'll be working at in Gaza and a referral centre in Amman, which specialises in reconstructive surgery. Um, So because the programme in Gaza is going to be primarily looking after burns patients and patients with significant complex blast injuries and kind of orthopedic trauma. We have a a relationship with a specialist plastics unit there that helps us do the more complicated grafts and reconstructive surgery for patients. And do you get much clinical training before you go out? There'll be people maybe listening who think, I don't know much about burns or I don't know much about sexual violence or I don't... So how much opportunity is there to develop some skills before you go or how much is it on the job you know at the time that's a really good question so I have to say when I first went out to Haiti I knew very little about burns and it was something that I flagged with the guys that had sort of offered me the job in the post 
their response to that was that, well, normally we would send you for two weeks training at the regional burn centre in France, in Lyon. But because the timing was such that there was a big gap that they needed to fill, they just wanted me out in the field as quickly as possible. And they would just give me all the protocols and they'll send me a very experienced anaesthetist who's written some of the protocols and has worked very closely with the burn specialists in France to develop them. And she would train me on the job. For the job in Central African Republic, I was hit with the sexual violence clinic unexpectedly. The thing that made it even harder at that point was that it was primarily pediatric patients that I was going to be looking after. So it was the under 18 year olds that had to all be seen by the expat doctor. Now that was partly for political reasons to protect our national staff because some of the cases had been involving international soldiers and UN soldiers and French soldiers as well as local kind of armed actors. And so that made it much more complex when it came to bringing complaints to kind of local judiciary services of which there weren't very many. Um, but yeah, that was very, so very it, difficult. So it takes a certain type of person to do this, doesn't it? I mean, there's 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 qualities that you need, you know, and we're going to yeah. talk about those a little bit later, you mm-hmm. know, creativity and flexibility mm. and adaptability. And um, we'll talk about those in a wee minute, but let's talk about some of your good experiences. We're going to talk about some of your good experiences, some of your bad experiences. Again, there's too much to talk about really in such a short podcast, but is there one or two really positive, memorable experiences that, that come to mind? Yeah, I mean, so many, obviously, and that that's what keeps you going. You know, it's this sort of like combination of just enough stress and just enough chaos with that really good sort of feedback that you get from the work that you do that makes you feel like, yeah, this is something I want to keep on doing. Um, I'd say that one of my favorite patients ever in the world was a young lad who was maybe about 15 years old. Um, in Central African Republic who came in with an acute abdomen and eventually um, he was diagnosed with TB peritonitis. And so although we technically didn't look after the TB patients in our hospital, uh, we had a good relationship with the MSF Belgium section that did look after all the HIV and TB patients that were being referred to them from the region, from the refugee camp in Mpoko by the airport, as well as from the city. And so because the boy still had surgical issues, we kept him, but he was in an isolation ward um, until we had him well established. And he had a colostomy bag and he was really struggling with all of this. And I discovered one day, though, uh, on doing the rounds, he was just bored out of his mind because he was on his own in this little stuffy room with a bit of a view down onto the kitchen area. But that was it. And he couldn't really leave. But turns out he was really artistic. And so I managed to procure some uh, packets of coloured pencils and a bunch of papers. And every day he would draw a different picture for me um, based on what he was observing down in the kitchen area. And the mamas down there who prepared all the food would come dressed in these beautifully coloured sort of cloths, you know, wrapped around and wraps in their hair and stuff like that. And he would just sit and observe and just draw all this. And so I had, by the end of it, I had this beautiful collection of drawings that this boy had done. So he was really good. Yeah, and um, I think I still absolutely love the story of this uh, Haitian couple that I looked after. Um, And I use this as an example for why good communication is really important because it comes down to understanding the cultural context that you work in. But um, we had a couple, a young couple, that had basically been cooking on Christmas Day and their gas cooker had exploded in their kitchen and they both came in and it was more than 30% body surface area burns, most of which were partial or full thickness. So they needed quite a prolonged period of hospitalization, lots of skin grafts, all the nutritional supplements and so on. And it was a pretty rocky road. One of them got quite a bad infection at one point and um, needed lots of antibiotics and it was a bit touch and go for the husband who lost a significant amount of weight but the wife told us she was actually secretly thrilled with this um (laughs) it was really funny at the end when they were discharged home 
on the same day, we managed to get them away home together. And I gave them all the usual advice about, you know, covering up, using sunscreen, uh, even on black skin, you need to be really careful um, because the, the skin that's had burns and grafts is really sensitive while, the, uh, while it's still recovering. And it takes about two years for those wounds to kind of mature and the scar tissue to heal properly. And I thought, you know, all the information was really clear and they looked happy and off they went. And then a few weeks later, I got this really panicked phone call uh, from the clinic and they basically, it was the husband on the phone to me and he's, he said, Dr. Aaron, Dr. Aaron, there's a really big problem. And I'm saying, oh my goodness, well, what's wrong? And I'm thinking, has one of the grafts failed or, you know, what's going on? And it, he, he said to me, Dr. Aaron, when may I make love to my wife again? <laughs> and I thought, oh my goodness. So of course that, that must be so important for this young couple, you know. That's obviously the priorities. How can they have a normal life again? Not yeah. not about what they should eat and not about what they should wear. It was about how can they return to a normal life? That's realistic medicine. It's completely realistic, holistic medicine. And it's just thinking about, you know, it's not something you would think in the UK necessarily that somebody's going to ask you because like the culture is just different. But in Haiti, that was something that they, you know. So important to them. Of course. And I'm sure, and we don't like to dwell on it, but there's obviously a lot of difficult times mm. in, in, you know, in, in missions like this. So what are a couple of the more difficult or, or negative experiences that you've had? I think sometimes if the communication goes very badly wrong within your team, that can be very hard because you live and work and socialise with the same people 24-7. And particularly when you're in a really tough context where you've got very uh, strict security rules about your movements out of the, the site where you're living and working. Um that that can be really hard and I've I'm not an argumentative person and I tend to try and be as diplomatic and as sort of level-headed in in my approach to any kind of conflict potentially as that as I can be um but I lost my cool when I had um uh, a West African anesthetist yelling at me telling me it was not his job to insert urinary catheters and that should be a nurse when actually it very clearly stated on our protocols for our burns patients that they all should have them and it made sense to me that this should happen in the operating theatre when they were having their first dressing. Um, we ended up having to be separated by one of my Congolese colleagues. <laughs> oh dear, so it got quite heated. It got quite heated, yeah. Um, and it, it eventually, I mean, the reason I got upset essentially was because he was calling me a silly little girl and I felt like that was really, really just, it just yeah. poked me in the and wrong place. tensions must be so high. I mean, you guys yeah. must be quite on the edge. There's so many pressures. That For you sure. Can't, you can't be prepared for you know yeah. and, and the isolation and the everyone in the same space mm. and, you know it, jeepers, it must be it well the be wonderful thing to... was that in that mission we had we actually one of our logistics staff had managed to procure a boxing bag and we, I got gifted some boxing gloves from one of my local Haitian surgeons so I used to go and let her rip on the boxing bag at the back of the at the back of our residence there because it just was the best way to just kind of de-stress a bit um but another really challenging situation as well I think was for me was just being faced with some of the cases in that sexual violence clinic in Carr. I think that was, as I said, you know, I hadn't really had any preparation or training for that. And I have to say that the wonderful thing was that the uh, local midwife that I worked with was just this phenomenal little five foot nothing African lady who was, oh, she was such a powerhouse. She was just... She was just incredible, her, the, the strength of character that she had, you know, because these are her people. So she is suffering alongside them. You know, she's having to come through um, hot zones where there's active fighting to get to work to every day. She's risking her life every day. And this is her city. And she's seeing all these people. And she's a midwife. Normally, I her probably job know is, some of them on both sides. Yeah, well, there's that too. Um, and that can be very difficult, um, maintaining your impartiality, especially when there's a conflict and it's down sort of religious lines or cultural lines. That can be really hard. 
Um, but you know, that's one of the mainstays of, of, of what MSF is all about. And we drum that into our staff is that, you know, we have to be impartial. It's all about offering healthcare to people who need it most, regardless of your creed or your race or your gender or what you eat for breakfast, you know, that, that should never come into it. And it's about the need of the human, no matter what human you are for healthcare, that you should be able to access that. So that can be, that can be really, really hard. But I think, yeah, certainly my first mission, you know, holding a dead child in my arms for the first time ever was the most horrible experience and feeling like a sense of helplessness that maybe something that you had done, you could have done differently, even if that's not the case. And I think that's why it's really important to have a very supportive team around you. Your team kind of become your family um, and to debrief these things and kind of organize M&M meetings because I think it's important to maintain that sense of professionalism around it. But it's very hard not to get very emotional 